everyone, and welcome to the show. This is episode number 114 of Pop Culturally Deprived, and today we're going to be talking about Some Like It Hot on your, well, nobody's perfect podcast. I'm Mandy Kay. And I'm Matthew Vose. Before we get into today's show, we want to make a quick programming note. Um, we're going to be moving to fortnightly episodes uh, for April and May. Uh, you've probably seen, if, you, if you've noticed on Twitter, Mandy's got a new job. I'm off on holiday. Uh, life has become a bit busy. So we're going to spread the episodes out for a couple of months. Um, and then we are going to get back into the regular cycle after that. So our next episode will actually be in two weeks on April 9th. I can't believe you put bi-weekly here. I know. <laughs> I know. I was like, I'm not sure what the right word is. And then as soon as you said fortnightly, I was like, that's absolutely the right word. Because <laughs> I could say bi-weekly and everyone's going to go, oh, twice, twice a, week. a week. Amazing. So many films. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Both are correct. Bi-weekly, meaning twice <laughs> a week and every two weeks. Just to make it things is. interesting. It's one of those words that you always have to clarify what you mean. Yep. Yeah. I mean, we could go to twice a week. You'd get the same programming or you'd get more episodes, but with a lot less prep. Yeah. <laughs> it would literally be watch a film, talk about a film. <laughs> I don't have enough time to watch that many films. I'm yeah, not true. like you where I watch 365 films in a year. <laughs> mm, 470. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. That's not possible. Only superhumans like you, Matthew, can do that. Yeah, people who work at home and don't pay enough attention to the film when they're actually working. <laughs> Boss, right. if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> All right. As I'm sure you just heard that other lovely voice with us this week, we are joined by Noelle LaCroix of Chipperish Media. She is co-host of Still Pretty, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast, and Orgasm, a podcast about that moment of explosive inspiration when an idea sparks a firestorm in your brain and you just have to talk about it. So welcome to the show, Noelle. Thank you. I am so excited to be here. This is one of my all-time favorite movies and I cannot wait to gush about it with the two of you. Oh, I'm so glad. I think we have a lot of listeners who are really excited about this too because... We've had several other Chipperish folks on our show. You know, Lonnie, Kelly, and Joshua have all been here. So we're just going down the list now to get everybody in. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds great. Yeah. Okay. Some like it hot. When did you first see this, Noelle? I saw this for the first time probably in my high school film class when I was a sophomore in high school. Um, And then it was part of the the syllabus for a college class I took called screen comedy, which was hands down my favorite college class ever. Um, Mm. So, and I've probably, I've probably seen this movie 20 or 30 times. Okay. Yeah. It's one that I tend to revisit often. What has kept you coming back over the years? It's just so delightful. I just smile the whole time I'm watching it. And I keep wondering, is it going to hold up? Is it really as good as I think it is? And then Mm -hmm. it is. And I'm like delighted all over again. It it is always listed as one of the greatest comedies, a classic, something everyone should see. And, And I think you're right. It absolutely is on its own merits. And it still is today. Yeah. It's it's fairly fresh in a lot of what it does. I was, I was kind of shocked actually watching it again for this show. Hmm. How fresh some of the moments 
feel or how how relevant some of it still feels. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a this yeah. is a film that's what sixty years old. That's uh, I don't know. Like that is it is or is it seventy years old at this point? When was this film made? I should know that. Uh, six nineteen. Yeah, nineteen fifty nine. Yeah, yeah. So it's remarkable to me that some of the some of the lines and some of the exchanges between characters as they're figuring out like what's what and how they're going to move through the world is so oddly familiar. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's it's. I want to say something about about you know that meaning that we haven't made a lot of progress in terms of appreciating the diversity of experience in the world around us, but. We'll get there. <laughs> okay, Mandy, this is your first time visiting the film. So yes. how come you've not seen this before? Well, anybody who has listened to the show for a long time knows I have frequently disliked old movies or assumed I disliked old movies. Um, Black and White is not a kind of movie that I've ever really been interested in. Except for like, you know, the first five minutes of the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> so, <laughs> this one really didn't have much going for it to get me to watch it. Yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes sense to me. <laughs> and yeah. now this is the second one we've done this year. Mm. So. All right. So Some Like It Hot is an American black and white romantic comedy that was directed and produced by Billy Wilder. Released in 1959, it stars Tony Curtis, Jack Lemmon, and Marilyn Monroe. Written by Billy Wilder and I.A.L. Diamond, the screenplay was loosely based on the French film Fanfare of Love, meaning that they wanted to base it on that film, but the script for it was lost. So instead, they bought the rights of the screenplay from the German remake of that French film called Fanfares of Love. And then they added the gangster subplot. Because the film broached such taboo topics as homosexuality and cross-dressing, the film did not receive approval from the Motion Picture Approval Code, the set of industry moral guidelines that was applied to most U.S. motion pictures released by major studios from 1930 to 1968. The code spelled out what was acceptable and what was unacceptable content for motion pictures produced for a public audience in the United States. Despite not having this approval, the film opened with critical acclaim and was nominated for six Academy Awards. Best Director, Best Actor for Jack Lemmon, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Black and White, Best Art Direction, Black and White, and it won the Oscar for Best Costume Design, Black and White. It has gone on to be considered one of the greatest films of all time and was one of the first 25 movies selected for the National Film Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. That was a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It makes every list of, you know, top 25 films you need to see before, you know, some arbitrary age or the best screen comedies of all time. And I mean, it's on every list ever. So, yeah, I'm not surprised that (laughs) I'm not surprised that there's a lot there. It always catches me out seeing uh, the Academy Awards split into color and black and white. And it's still six, seven years after this, they're still doing the awards as two different categories. It was a very long time they split them, and now it's uh, all films going apart. Yeah, I didn't realize they had ever done that, although it makes perfect sense. And so when I was putting this together, I was like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I think the first few times it was in two categories, in inverted commas, film they, they gave a special achievement award to films that had been in color, because there were so few. Right. Um, yeah. And then, then they started doing it as two categories, and then eventually they just dropped it back down to one again. Mm. 
it's their award show. They can do what they want. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, despite this movie having appeared on every best movie list ever made, I had no idea what this movie was about. All I knew was that it had Marilyn Monroe in it. I didn't even know it was Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon when I sat down to watch it. So this movie is uh, had an interesting synopsis from IMDb that's actually not super spoilery. So that's the one that I stole this week. Uh, when two male musicians witness the St. Valentine's Day massacre in Chicago, they flee the state in an all-female band disguised as women, but further complications set in. <laughs> further complications? What could possibly get complicated when you, <laughs> you know, when you dress in drag and disguise yourself and are on the run from the mob? I mean, what, what complications could possibly happen? Ah, uh, there's I no mean, complications there. No, no. <laughs> I always forget about the gangster subplot. Really? It, it feels, you know, it's a big setup to get them to this place where they're disguised as women right. and meeting Marilyn Monroe. And, and until watching it this time, looking back on it, I never remembered that bit. It was just they were pretending to be women for reasons. Yeah, for reasons. <laughs> yeah. So how was everyone able to watch this? Uh, Noelle, given you come back to this, I assume you probably own it? Yes, I do. I own this on DVD. Nice. Yep. And in the States, it is actually on Amazon Prime. I was surprised. There are two versions on Amazon. One you have to rent and one is available with Amazon Prime. I don't know what the difference between the two is, but Hmm. I got to watch the one that was included. So yay. (laughs) What about you, Matthew? And in the UK, it's available on Netflix. Wow, I cannot remember the last time you have had a movie available on Netflix. Yeah, I know, right? It never happens anymore. I was very surprised. Okay, um, big director, big cast for this one. So can you tell me, Mandy, about your experience of Billy Wilder, Marilyn Monroe, Curtis Lemon? Well, this is my very first Marilyn Monroe movie okay. ever. So, I mean, she's iconic. Everybody knows who she is. But my closest, I guess... Marilyn Monroe was the one that uh, there was a movie I watched in high school where Ashley Judd played Norma Jean and Mira Sorvino played Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> <laughs> what? Like, that's my experience that. with Marilyn Monroe. I never watched that, but I remember that. Yeah. I think it's called Norma Jean and Marilyn. That um, sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, my high school self loved it. And that's my whole experience of really Marilyn Monroe. And of course, there was a um, NBC did a musical television show several years back called Smashed. Smash, smashed one of those two, where they were doing a Broadway play about Marilyn. So I know actually zero real information about her. All of my information comes from fictionalized versions of her. It's great. Nice. (laughs) Billy Wilder, I kept thinking when I saw his name, I was like, I know that name. I know that name. Why do I know that name? And it turns out it's because we just did Sunset Boulevard and he directed that. So yes, I have actually seen something that he's done. Tony Curtis, I only know him by name and because he's Jamie Lee Curtis's dad. Mm. And Jack Lemmon, I know because he's one of the grumpy old men. Yes, he is. That's it. <laughs> if we go on and do a few more of these, there is a very good chance we'll see more of both Wilder and Lemon together. Mm-hmm. They, yes. they did a lot of stuff together. So Yeah. The apartment. Mm. Which we almost did instead of Sunset Boulevard. I think that also has a, a New Year's sequence. Mm, okay. Like, mm. I would be curious because Jack Lemon was absolutely delightful in this. And I liked seeing him as a youngin instead of I've only ever seen him in his older roles, you know, like Grumpy Old Man and the stuff that he did with um, 
Walter Matthau. Is that his mm-hmm. name? Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting comparing the character here to The Odd Couple. Mm-hmm. We play something very different, so we and much more like the apartment. Right. Mm. Um, we always try to talk about your experience of similar material. There, there is a really good Wikipedia page about um, cross-dressing in film and TV. Um, mm-hmm. But actually, I was trying to find films that are men dressing as women, but not in um, a Tu Wong Fu, Priscilla Queen of the Desert sort of way. More you know, going undercover sort of things. And and there are a few things like Tootsie, Mrs. Doubtfire and Charlie's Aunt. Have you seen any of them? Um, I have seen Mrs. Doubtfire. Okay. And I've seen White Chicks. Oh, okay. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, so I went through that same list, um, the yeah. Wikipedia list. And mm. I was like, most of the, like, there are others on the list I've seen. Most of the ones I've seen, though, are ones where um, women go undercover as men, mm. which is an entirely different thing altogether. Or it was stuff like John Travolta playing the mom in Hairspray, which is a deliberate character choice, not a plot point. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Um, So from this perspective, I honestly think it is just Mrs. Doubtfire. And oddly enough, White Chicks is the same kind of thing. Okay. I have not seen White Chicks. Don't. (laughs) Have you you seen the big one, Big Mama's House? I haven't. Okay. I don't think. I, I remember when it came out, and I was going through the list thinking that sounds really familiar, but I don't think I ever saw it. <laughs> I just saw that on the list and went, oh, yeah, that exists. <laughs> That's, that has, is that the one with Martin in it? Martin Lawrence, yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. Nope. Okay, it's, it's a good and interesting genre, but yeah. yeah, really interesting to then see all the different types of cross-dressing that happens in films. Yeah. Exactly like you say, you get the, the Mulans of this world that mm-hmm. do a very different story to, well, White Chicks and Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's interesting that with, with Some Like It Hot, Tootsie and Mrs. Doubtfire, which are the three, I said drag mm-hmm. earlier and I, it's, I'm not sure it's drag. I'm not sure that's the appropriate mm. word, but where we have, we have men dressing as women for employment purposes, mm. at least in those three examples. And I can't think of women. I cannot think of a, a woman dresses as a man story where it's really just about the job and then, you know, shenanigans ensue. I'm drawing a blank. I think there was one. There was like a Barbara Streisand or someone. Hmm. Okay. Now I need to visit this Wikipedia list because this is a it's a fascinating subgenre of Mm. usually comedy. I think I love a I love a disguise story or a fish out of water story, and you get both of those with someone, you know, disguising themselves as a different sex. It's always fun. And and you're right, it's not a a lifestyle thing like become, going in drag or transvesticism. Transvesticism? Yeah. Being a transvestite? Um, yeah. yeah tra- it's a disguise. <laughs> yeah, it's a disguise with this then sort of gender bending element, which of course is a great way to explore any taboo you care to explore because then we get mm. to, you know, you get to not just be a fish out of water, but you get to be a you know, a fish in a totally different landscape that presumably yeah. fish should never 
be in? I don't know. Now I'm doing now I'm doing exactly what the film does and mixing my metaphors and making it super <laughs> clunky. But Yes, you're barking up the wrong fish. I am well. barking up the wrong mm-hmm. fish. Love that line so much. <laughs> the the one that's standing out, if I'm looking at this list trying to find uh, things of women getting into disguise, she's the man. Amanda Bynes dresses as a man to be accepted into Illyria's boys' school soccer team and get revenge on Cornwall, based on the play Twelfth Night. Mm. But the rest of them are... I mean, there's, there's a film called Connie and Carla, which I've seen and can't remember, so that might tell you everything about it. Um, two women go on the run after accidentally witnessing a mafia hit and wind up posing as drag queens. Oh, that's uh, that's an interesting we, twist. Yeah, Posing which adds another queen. layer to it. Yeah. Mm. There's Shakespeare in Love, where Gwyneth Paltrow dresses up like a man so that she can be a man who plays a woman, so that she can play mm. Juliet in Romeo and Juliet. True. Which is a whole, I mean, that's like a layer and a layer. Yeah. Uh, I haven't seen Shakespeare in Love. Oh, that might need to be a reverse PCD. <laughs> that should probably love that be movie. on the list. Oh, yes. boy. <laughs> be on the list. Oh, it's so good. I love that movie so much. Okay. <laughs> I don't love it, but I'm in a I'm in a minority there. Everyone I know who has seen it loves it. I don't particularly love it, but I don't know. That probably says something about me and not anything about the film. <laughs> <laughs> I might okay. just have some nostalgia attached to it. I'll have to give that some thought. Mm. Yeah, this is a great genre of films to to move on the conversation. I'm going to ask any listeners, let us know your best Someone dresses as the uh, uh, another gender for reasons. Yeah, films and this, I want to know the reasons. Yeah. I want to mm. know that, like, why? Because you know the the three the three examples that I'm most familiar with. Um, this one, Tootsie and Mrs. Doubtfire. It's all employment. It's all so that they can get a job that they wouldn't otherwise have gotten um i mean here in some like it hot we've got the the mob escape subplot as well but you know they are they are looking for work when um when they go into the the talent agent's office and oh i can't remember is it nelly who who um kind of tips them off that they're looking for a, a saxophone, mm. a bass player, and then they go in to they go into the, the office ha- and they're like, we get no, here we you're looking for a saxophone a saxophone player and a bass player and he says, You're the wrong shape. Goodbye. <laughs> you know? So Yeah, they have to be young looking and blonde. Yes. And women. Yes. Which when we when we get to the band they don't. <laughs> I'm sure right. not all those women were blonde. No. I don't think so. I also think it's interesting that of all of the all of the women in the band, Tony Curtis is the most brunette. Tony mm. Curtis has the darkest of the dark blonde hair of that whole group. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's really he's really not Joe is really not as all in as Jerry is. Um or at least that's my that's my reading on that choice of wigs, because of course when when Jerry dresses up, suddenly Jerry is Daphne and is like stoked to be there, and you know ready to schmooze with all the girls and talk about seamstresses and corsets, and Joe has to say, "Come on, you know we're we're we need to be serious here." Hmm. 
Okay. I, I really want to dig into the identity stuff. Yeah. I have one question I need to ask first. Mandy, what did you think of this film? I actually really liked it. It was utterly delightful. Yeah? Yeah. There were some moments where I I found it... You know, I go back and forth with this thing of, can I just enjoy this or do I have to sit here with my 2018 mindset and hate all of the misogyny, the misogyny that I see in movies from the 50s and 60s? You know, but then there, every, for every moment of eye-rolliness, oh, I can't believe they did that, there was an equal moment of, like Noel said, of this was ahead of its time in, in so many ways. And it, it's so good. It's just, it's really good. So... Yeah. Did, did it take you with it on the, the core idea they witnessed this massacre, they go on the run disguised as women? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess like you, the the mob storyline wasn't really my focus. Like, it was just what got them where they were, and that's mm. what I cared about. I guess the main thing I kept repeating was, wow, these two boys are really unlucky. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then, um, you know, it was just... I, I cared about the part of the story where they were with the girls and seeing them as girls. You know, Daphne and Josephine were delightful, and I really enjoyed that part. Um, the rest, you know, it was just it was just there to get me to where I wanted to be. Okay. I, I, and I think that's fair. It's an interesting setup, but, yeah, it spends a lot more time on identity, Marilyn Monroe, and possibly gender politics so identity we we were there yeah i i i love the way exactly like you just said noel he's he, i can't remember which way around they are but he even says we could be josephine and geraldine yeah and that's basically rejected i know i'm daphne i'm going to be someone completely different yeah mm-hmm. and, and then they meet and fall for this girl who has herself changed her name oh, and God, tried to I become someone different so much sugar cane yeah i changed it It used to be sugar kvalchik (laughs) so great so great i love it so much but yeah it's it's uh it's a nice twist when they're they're talking to the talent agent and he says you have to be under 25 and jerry says we could pass for that you have to be blonde. We could dye our hair. And you have to be girls. We could. And then Joe interrupts and says, no, we couldn't. Whereas up till this point, Joe has been the one with the harebrained schemes, you know, going forward. He's mm. Joe has been the one who's, you know, we're going to we're going to hawk our overcoats and we're going to bet on dog racing when it's February in Chicago. That's that's insanity, Joe. But then. It flips as soon as we have this opportunity to escape. I don't know. I don't know what it is about about that moment in the talent agent's office that makes suddenly suddenly Jerry's the one with the crazy idea. And Joe is saying, no way, not going to do it. But then, of course, it's Joe ultimately who makes the call and puts on the, the high-pitched voice you know says i understand you're looking for a bass uh a bass player and a saxophone and i don't know i love i love the shift the sort of back and forth with the two of them where they clearly have this really established relationship where they know sort of what their roles are within the relationship but then it's this 
opportunity that makes that sort of flips Jerry for the first time. And then as they go through, we see, you know, Jerry is just all in, you know, as as Daphne. He's he mm-hmm. suggests that they they um you know, change their names to Josephine and Geraldine. And then when Joe confronts him, he says, well, I never did like the name Geraldine. (laughs) So he's just, he's just in it for the, I don't know if it's the reinvention or what it is. If, if Jerry feels empowered by having made this decision when it's usually Joe making a decision and Jerry going along with it. I don't know. I love their relationship so much. I love their weird friendship where Joe always, it seems like Joe always has some wild idea. And Jerry says, that's nuts. There's no way. And then somehow ends up going along with it anyway. And, and once they've actually met Sugar, the the interactions between Daphne and Sugar are really interesting because the, the whole sequence with her in bed with him, there's there's a strange uncomfortableness to it. Mm-hmm. And and part of that is because he's in so, such proximity to her and secret might be uncovered and all this sort of thing. Yeah. But but the next day it's it really comes across much more like he's enjoying having a woman friend without it having to have overtures of or oh, you're gonna do more with her laddish banter type thing. Yeah. Yeah, that whole sequence on the train with the the party in Daphne's <laughs> in Daphne's bunk mm-hmm. where uh you know all the girls are show up with their um you know <laughs> wine and vermouth. <laughs> with their vermouth, yeah. <laughs> Bourbon vermouth. We could make Manhattans. <laughs> and, and you know, crackers in bed and I love I love the the moment of anyone for salami and this giant salami <laughs> just appears in the middle of the of the the um the frame so funny so funny and of course that you know that's a real freak out moment for Jerry and of course he ends up pulling the emergency brake and all you know um hilarity ensues but mm-hmm. you're right after that it really, it really shifts for Jerry and they're just girlfriends. In fact, Joe even remarks on it. He said, he says, I saw you on the bus all lovey dovey whispering and giggling and borrowing each other's lipstick. He's just, you mm. know, like, like it's interesting to me that there's this like kind of a, there's, there's kind of a, sexual crush but also the just the fun of of being a girl having a female friend it's like a new experience that they're both they both seem to be really into and i there's something just adorable about that yeah with with jerry i kind of read that as his initial interactions with Sugar, particularly when they were alone in the bunk together, and like you said, Matthew, there was a little bit of uncomfortableness there. I kind of read that as he was reacting the way he thought a man was supposed to react to her. And then after they were all together and he got to experience the party and just the giggliness and the fun and, like you said, the enjoyment of having just friendship he was able to move more into that space where he felt more comfortable and i i feel like that that is a huge shift in in jerry's personality that continued even throughout the 
towards the end when you get that scene where he's really excited that Osgood has proposed to him. Makes me so happy every and time. He, I mean, he's just he's just legitimately happy that this thing is happening yes. to him, you know, and like the shift between that scene and that first scene with him and Sugar just being alone in that bunk is like night and day. And it's pretty great. Yeah, Jerry really is. We go on such an emotional journey with Jerry over the course of this film um, from, you know, being being dragged around by Joe to taking on this new identity as Daphne and then really enjoying it. I mean, I love mm-hmm. that. There's so much to be said about that scene where Joe comes back to the room and, you know, Jerry's there still dressed as Daphne and just high on life. Like, it is so Mm. delightful with the maracas. Mm -hmm. And I never, I never know, like, where the line is for Jerry. Because Jerry's definitely really, really excited, genuinely happy that this has happened. And Joe is trying to make this make sense and says, what are you going to do on your honeymoon? And Jerry says, We've been discussing that. He wants to go to the Riviera, but I kind of lean towards Niagara Falls. Completely missing what Joe is really saying, which is, um, mm-hmm. are you, get, you know, what are you going to do when you have to sleep with this guy? And I, I'm just fascinated by Jerry's ability to kind of slide in and out of that identity as Daphne, because immediately following that, he says, oh, I know it can't last. We'll get a quick annulment, you know. But five seconds ago, he was really, really stoked about this idea of marrying Osgood and being the girl who's engaged. And I just, it's so delightful. Jack Lemon is so good. There's so many <laughs> layers to Jerry's transformation. I guess, for lack of a better word. Yeah. And I think some of it is because before he went on that date with Osgood, you know, he was he really didn't want to because Osgood, you know, was pushy and pinched him on the elevator. And gross. And, yeah. You know, all this other stuff. But when he comes back after he's enjoyed the night with Osgood and having Osgood treat him, I mean, we didn't really get to see it, but having Osgood kind of treat him like a princess and this woman that he's really trying to woo, that's when he comes back and he just, you could tell he genuinely enjoyed it. It's so delightful. It is absolutely delightful. And and the, the fact that it is Marilyn Monroe who has changed her identity to become Sugar Cane, you know, this, this, you mentioned earlier Norma Jean who colored her hair and had plastic surgery and changed her name and was suddenly this fabulous it girl mm-hmm. it 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 works because we know the history of that person and she herself is then an interesting character trying to break her routines break her habits do something different than she's uh, done before but actually ends up with the same old habits and in the same situation yeah and she's excited about it at the end mm. I think that's really, really fascinating that she's just delighted to be with Joe, knowing, you know, as soon as she puts it all together and figures out that he's deceived her, she runs straight to him. And I'm fascinated by that. And I don't quite know what to do with it. There's something 
sort of lovely about it um, in that she knows she knows that this can't end well. I mean, and he even tells her, you know, you deserve better, better than the coleslaw in the face and, you know, all of these mm. horrible things that she's endured in her relationships in the past. Mm. And she's just smiling at him and says, yeah, you know, keep going. She is choosing to be happy in the moment rather than think of the future and how this could go horribly wrong. And on the one hand, there's something kind of problematic about that, but there's also something, at least for me, really lovely about the having the knowledge that this might end horribly and still going for it because right now it's what is making her happy. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it takes me back to, so she had that monologue when she was first talking to Josephine about why she's even in this band. Yes. You know, because she's running away from the all-male bands that she's been in. She's got that whole monologue starting with, I'm not very bright, I guess. And Mm. she goes through all this thing. She can't keep being with the men because she can't afford it because she ends up having to spend all of her money on them. And then they're awful to her and and all this other stuff. And I, I can't figure out if I love or hate that about her because, one, it's, God, it's so self-aware. Yeah. And that's not something that, you stereotypically get with female characters from this era, you know, and at the, on the other hand, you've got this whole thread of her believing that she's not very bright, you know, and and she repeats that a couple of times throughout the movie. And it makes me kind of grumpy every time she does that. And, and so I can't decide if I like it or I don't like it. And then it flows into the scene at the end where, She's doing what makes her happy. And, you know, she ends up with the guy who they've been setting her up to be with this whole movie. And so it's kind of the happily ever after that you're supposed to get in a romantic comedy. Mm-hmm. But they kind of tainted a little bit because he said, he says to her, but this isn't what you want because I'm a saxophone player. Yeah. And she's like, yeah, I know. And she does it anyway. And so she's doing this thing that we already know hasn't worked out for her. And and so it's like, are you choosing this because stereotypically you're supposed to? Or are you choosing this because you are actually trying to make your life better and this is a good decision for you? And the movie skirts that line so closely that it, it's just it's hard to wrap my brain around what's actually happening. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's funny to me that I I am rooting for them to be together. But I kind of don't know why. Like, it's like mm-hmm. I'm like, this is not yeah. this is not going to end well for anybody, right? And I was yet. sitting there. I was I was watching the movie, and I was like, I don't know how this can possibly end well for anybody. One, I wasn't sure how they were going to get out of the situation they were in, and so then the fact that that Spats got killed, of course, made sense. But then they end up witnesses to that murder, so they're right. still going to have to be on the run again. So like. How is this ever going to work in the future for any of them? And I love that they just leave it kind of open ended at the at the end. Yeah, and it's it's so good, but it still has so many tiny little things that just make you go, "What? Why? How? You know?" Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting to me. I mean, you've done you did um, Sunset Boulevard, which is also mm-hmm. Billy Wilder, and. Um, is uh, double indemnity on the list? Because that's also wilder. 
And that's Mm. classic. I mean, that's classic noir. And what's interesting to me about this film kind of up against those two films is it's a lot of the same kind of behavior. You know, um, people who, who lie to each other and sneak around and do some, you know, maybe really questionable things. But here, because we're in a comedy, it's just, it's funny. And it's, they're, they're allowed to have their happily ever after, despite all kind of being scoundrels in their own way. Whereas with Sunset Boulevard and Double Indemnity, you see, um, you see characters punished for stepping outside mm-hmm. of those lines or, um, for lying or cheating or okay. manipulating. I just think it's an interesting, I don't know. It's an, it's an interesting, um, facet of the genre that when, you know, for example, when Joe dresses up as Junior and he trips Sugar on the beach and they're having, they have their whole conversation about, you know, she's here with the band and the music that they're playing. And as soon as he says he doesn't care for jazz, she, goes right along with him and and tells him that she studied at the Sheboygan Conservatory of Music. <laughs> and he says, Tony Curtis is wonderful in this moment. He says, good school. Because, of course, that's the lie that he told Sweet Sue as they're getting mm-hmm. on the train. And so Sugar has picked this up and is going to change in the moment to fit the person that she thinks he wants in in the same way he's done for her exactly mm. exactly so there that moment for me is kind of the proof of concept on the joe sugar relationship that they're a match for each other because they each do for the other what you know they 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 try to form themselves to what they think the other person wants but it really is. I mean, that the ending, re- it's it's a wild ending. And of course, Osgood has the f- fantastic final line, you know, nobody's perfect, which is just, I mean, what else are you going to say to Jerry saying, I'm a man as he rips his wig off and Osgood is completely unfazed? Like, mm-hmm. what, what do we even do with that? But you don't understand, Osgood. Uh, I'm a man. Well, nobody's perfect. Yeah, I I love that line. That was going to be one of the things I talked about in my favorites because God, when that when they did that line and then it cut to black, I could not stop laughing. It was the absolute best part of this movie, hands down. And then I was reading that that wasn't even supposed to be the last line of the movie. It was written as a placeholder because yes. they knew they wanted something amazing. They just weren't sure what it was. And then um, it was still in there when they did it for a test audience. And the test audience laughed so hard, they realized, oh, that really is it. And it's so oh, great. It's so good. It's so fantastic. I think, um, God, who played Osgood? Was that Joe E. Brown? Uh, yes. I think it, he is amazing. Just his facial expressions throughout the whole movie. Like he played that character to a T. And 
like I, I don't particularly care for the character of Osgood, particularly the way he was introduced to us with the elevator and everything. Oh, yeah. But the way it ended up uh, with him just deadpanning that and still being okay with it, it it made my day. I I feel like that final line, that the the final joke, um, it tells you a lot about Osgood potentially. I mean, Marilyn Monroe herself didn't like quite how dumb they made the character. She's like, there was no way you would buy these two men um, who are fairly broad and very masculine looking, disguise themselves as women. And that's that's why the film is black and white, because they could not pass as women yes. well enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so if it, we take it at that face value that actually these these men do not look like women, Osgood has seen a man dressed as a woman and still pursued him? With a 2019 mindset, it's really interesting because this was still a time when being homosexual was illegal. Being with another man was was absolutely something you could be arrested for. And so he's found someone who's trying to pass as a woman and pursued them with a view to getting engaged and potentially married. It's it's a really interesting insight into the character. But the way the film plays it and the way that way films have played it for many, many years is this is a gag. It's a goof. It's the security guard in Paddington thinking the Lord from Downton Abbey is actually a woman and is the most attractive woman in the world at that moment. It doesn't matter what they look like. They want to flirt. Yeah. Yeah. But it works as a great character moment and, and a really interesting thing. And a really interesting uh, twist on Osgood as we, mm. you know... As compared to where he starts out, where he's just, he's just the worst. I enjoy his character, but I do not enjoy his character at all. The mm-hmm. way that he, you know, he, he pinches Daphne and she slaps him. And then he just keeps, he keeps going. Mm-hmm. And it's just the grossest. And yet, at the end, he's totally fine with it. He's the other side of, you know, Jerry as Daphne, you know, spread out on the on the bed, you know, saying, I'm engaged with this giant smile. It's I don't I don't know what to do with with the the arc that Osgood takes. And I love it. I love it so much. Well, let's talk a little bit on the humour then. I I can never decide whether the film is trying to do something with gender politics and and commentary on the way men treat women and the way that women uh, treat men, in inverted commas, are looking for security because if they have a man, other men leave them alone. Right. Um, Or is it doing, hey, corsets are tight, heels are difficult to walk in, don't men look silly, dress as women? I mean... What, What did you two think? I don't know. Mandy, do you want to go first? I have thoughts, but they're they're kind of roundabout. <laughs> Is that capital T thoughts? I have thoughts. Yes, I do. I do. I I don't know that the movie set out to make a statement on gender politics, but I think it did. I think I mean they they went out of their way to include lines like Look at that, I'm not even pretty. They don't care, just so long as you're wearing a skirt. It's like waving a red flag in front of a bull. Yeah. You know, that's mm-hmm. such a moment of this is how the world really works. And now these men are getting a taste of the other side. And, and they did that a few times, like intentionally in the movie. Like they weren't subtle about it. But at the same time, they still had 
characters like Osgood, and they still had characters like the bellhop. Oh God, the bellhop! You know, yeah. and yeah. and so like I, I feel like the movie was made for the world that the movie was made in. You know, it was made for 1959. Mm-hmm. But because of the situation they put their characters in, they were able to be realistic about it and say, okay, we're going to acknowledge that these two men who have never experienced these things before are going to experience these things because that's what women experience. Right. And and so it's there, I think, from a 2019 perspective, it's it's kind of like it blows your mind a little bit because you've got a, a line that's awful followed by a line that's so incredibly, like, woke – and you just don't know what to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is why I say, I mean, I, I really feel like a lot of the the gender politics, intentional or not, hold up so mm-hmm. well. Um, I'm not entirely sure that that introduction of the two of them in their disguises is played entirely for laughs. I don't think I mean it's funny, but I don't think it's a hundred percent ha ha men in dresses. Because mm-hmm. Jerry is commenting the entire time. I mean, he's complaining. He's it's so drafty. And how do they walk in these things? And he's just he's sort of incensed on behalf of women. You know, he says, they must mm-hmm. be catching cold all the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then when Sugar walks by. I mean, we have the lovely, you mm-hmm. know, here's our here's our sexy sex symbol, Marilyn Monroe, with the muted trumpet on the soundtrack. And yeah, it's a little bit objectify-y. But then Jerry says, Look at that. Look how she moves. That's just like jello on springs. Must have some sort of built-in motor or something. I tell you, it's a whole different sex. And it's it's right it toes the line it's it's right there between objectification and like genuine curiosity mm-hmm. and that's the that's the piece that i find so fascinating is there's that it's like yeah she's you know yeah she's sexy and it's fun to watch her walk or whatever but also how is this like it's like jerry has a whole new appreciation for women and their bodies and how they function in the world. Am I making any sense mm-hmm. at all? No, absolutely. absolutely. Uh, mm. He's he's looking at her and like, how on earth can she do that? Because I can't do that wearing the same kind of clothes. You know, it, it's a moment of admiration and like sincere incredulity. Yeah, I think. Yeah, which is so. It's so you know fascinating. And then of course we do get to. The hotel and, you know, poor Jerry. I just got pinched in the elevator. And of course, <laughs> the way, the way he delivers that line. Dirty old man. What happened? I just got pinched in the elevator. It sounds like the elevator is a part of the body, which I yeah. just yeah. love so much. And Mandy, you brought this up already, but that exchange with Joe that follows is so shockingly contemporary because Jerry goes and looks in the mirror and says, I'm not even pretty. And Joe says, they don't care just so long as you're wearing a skirt. Mm -hmm. And there's something, there's something so matter of fact about that. And so like, this is how the world is. 
And it's really sobering. I think for, you know, 1959, but also for 2019. Yeah, a film like this, you would not necessarily kill the gangsters. They'd have to serve some justice. You'd have to have sadness and then reconciliation between Sugar and Joe. This just skips over a lot of the the sort of emotional moments you would do and just gets people together, just deals with the situation. Let's move on to the next scene. Yeah, for sure. I. It's, but it's it's fascinating to me how it's just, it's like right on that line of making of sort of making commentary but not you know and i think that that sugar's self-awareness you know i'm not very i guess i'm not very bright is part of that i don't know so mandy this was your first marilyn monroe what was your impression of her you know in this film mm. having you know just absorbed from the culture everything <laughs> that you absorbed what right you know I so there were a few things that went through my head about Marilyn Monroe. First, um, I was surprised that she's given top billing for this movie. I've always heard this as being a Marilyn Monroe movie. You know, uh-huh. um, her name comes up first. Um, it turns out she made the most out of any of the cast for doing this movie, but she doesn't even show up in the movie until twenty five minutes in. This is very much a Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon movie. They are the stars of this movie, not her. And so that was surprising to me. But watching it and watching her performance, so I didn't read any of the stuff about how terrible it was working with her on this movie and how horribly she did, Mm. you know, trying to get through her lines and everything. I, I didn't know any of that until after I watched it. And so watching it, I was just thinking, she's actually a really good actress, you know, yeah. and of, of course she is. She's iconic, and it's not just because of the way that she looks. She is genuinely talented. Um, watching the scene at the end where Joe has called her to say goodbye. Oh, yeah. Watching the emotions play out on her face of her trying to be strong and okay with it in her voice, but her eyes are full of tears, and you can tell by her body language she's just devastated. She genuinely had a lot of talent as an actress. Yeah. And I think I didn't really expect that because I've never seen her before at all. When I think of Marilyn Monroe, I think of Happy Birthday, Mr. President. You yeah. know, I think of the um, the white dress. I, I think that's from Gentleman uh, for Blondes, maybe? Seven Seven year, whichever one. You know, but I always think of her as purely a sex symbol and not an actual actress. And this movie shifted that for me. Yeah, she's she is really, really very good and much more nuanced than I think she ever certainly than she got credit for at the time. Um mm-hmm. because people assumed that the the dumb blonde, which she played in, in several of her films, was Marilyn Monroe. Um, people expected her to be that, but she was actually, she was very bright. Um, and she took acting very seriously. Um, I think, and I think that Sugar's self-awareness is informed by Marilyn Monroe's self-awareness that mm-hmm. she, I mean, the, the sex symbol that she was, she was the, the perfect, you know, post-war ideal of the American girl. So, you know, soft and 
worshipful of men and naive, um, especially about her own sexiness, and really offering this kind of sexiness without making any demands. And I think that she, I think that she does that purposefully. You brought up Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. That's one of my favorite Marilyn Monroe films. And you see it there as well. Their real awareness. She says, I think it's in that movie. She has a line about, I can be smart when it's important, but most men don't like it. Mm -hmm. So her, that, her dumb blonde persona is in itself kind of a commentary on what is expected of women. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, she gives a great, great performance in this film. The only thing that I wish she didn't do, and I think this is just her signature thing, is is her voice. Her voice drove me nuts when because she, she does that that like baby breathy mm-hmm. sound, and I I feel fairly certain that wasn't her normal speaking voice, but that's just her thing. Maybe maybe I yeah I don't know it, exactly like you said, Noelle. At the time, it was the uh, idolized perfect woman. In look, mm-hmm. in sound, in, in being ready to fulfill whatever a man wanted. But by this stage, moving into sort of second wave feminism, it was becoming outdated and, and a, a, a thing ridiculed because women were going to the movies, getting jobs, having their own lives more. So it was sort of changing the attitude towards her. Well, and she was, she was, when she was alive, she was very popular with men and not so popular with women. And that mm. shifted after her death, which I think is fascinating. Um, and of course, part of that is the feminist scholars that, you know, really took a, a look at Marilyn and the kind of femininity that she represented um, and how that feeds into, you know, our cultural ideas about sex and sexuality and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, what that means for women. I mean, we're coming, you know, with, with some like it hot, we're coming away from the film noir femme fatale sort of sex is dangerous space and moving into a more like, certainly not, not sex positive, but there's definitely a kind of safety in the sexuality, I think, that Marilyn Monroe performs um, that you wouldn't have seen, you know, 10 or 15 years earlier at the movies. And, and yeah, the fact that she died so young, I mean, 36, you know, yeah. at, at what should have been her peak and her prime. Mm-hmm. There is a, there is a, a narrative to her life, a sort of beginning, middle and end that allows you to dig into it and really uh, understand her when you look at the details around it, not just what was portrayed through the films, through the, the, the media, but understanding, oh, she did work with acting coaches because she wanted to be taken seriously, but no one did. They cast her in these roles and these were the only ones she could get. And she sought out, you know, intellectuals, thinkers of the time. But they were really excited by the fact this really glamorous woman wanted to hang out with her, with them, and, and so treated her as such. They didn't try to treat her on sort of their terms or on her own terms. Mm-hmm. And then you get into, and and she felt so alone, she then became addicted to drink, to drugs, and that ended in, in an overdose. 
So you can see all the impact of everything else on what she wanted and no one let her be that thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just, I mean, she's she, part of the reason that she is as iconic as she is, is that cautionary tale um, mm-hmm. really about what Hollywood does to women. You know, in, in, mm. when you make someone into a star very, very deliberately, what that does to the person underneath. And I think that's a big part of the fascination with her life is that was so much of what she experienced in her life was done to her as part of this Hollywood system. I mean, at the time of her death, she was trying to move into different roles, into more serious roles. Um, mm. But the, you know, the the folks around her didn't want that for her. And, and going back into th- this film specifically, uh, you've reminded me, I think Lani's talked about, about the, the way a film or, or the way stories or situations are grown in the environment around them. Oh, absolutely. As much as this film is trying to do uh, some sort of gender politics and make comments about the way men and women treat each other and act towards each other. It still dresses her in the way it dresses her and makes her look a certain way, particularly her, her sort of stage outfits yes. and the way she has to lounge in the boat at the end. Yes. It, it is just, we've got Marilyn Monroe and we're going to put her on screen in the best you've ever seen her. Yeah. 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 Her gowns in this film are very deliberately <laughs> Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, and and skin coloured except for in a few places. Yeah, yep. yeah, very sheer. There's a lot of sheer. Mm. That low back on the the yep. one um, dress that she wear. I'd, I mean, kind of scandalously low, certainly for the mm-hmm. time. Mm. But yeah, that was, you know, and of course that is her role in that scene, and then the scene that follows where she's on the boat with Junior. And seducing him. What did you make of that, Mandy? His whole, oh, girls leave me cold line. I couldn't quite figure out what he was trying to do. It honestly left me a little bit baffled, with as, well, at least with as long as he let it go. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really, it kind of made me mad a little bit. Uh-huh. It kind of made me want to punch him in the face just a little bit. Um, and then watching her try so hard to be that woman who miraculously cured him yeah. of this ailment. It, it made me sad to see her throwing herself at him like that. I, I feel like that that wasn't a thing. I I feel like they did that as a gag. It, it wasn't trying to be commentary on anything. Yeah. It was just a gag. But through the lens of 2019, it... It was pretty awful. Yeah. Well, and of course, the gag is, you know, the man is not making any moves. In fact, the man, the, the, the gag is the man is not interested in sex, which is a whole, that's a, that's a whole can of worms about, you know, gender and sexuality and what is expected of people. And then we have this, it's this weird, it's a weird um, deception because, of course, we know, we, the audience, know that Joe is very interested in sugar and is probably really enjoying this. But then to pretend like 
no, it's not doing anything for me. It's such a, I don't know, it's such a strange thing. And I guess, I guess the idea for him is to be, or his idea, I should say, is that he is being not a brute. He's being not the guys that she's been with. Mm, who, with eight hands. Yeah. 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 Mm. Rough hairy beast with eight hands. Um, <laughs> you know, who he doesn't, he doesn't want her just for sex and he can prove it because he's not interested in sex. There's something, I don't know. I don't know. It's that, it's that pretending to be the thing you think the other person wants a little bit, but Oh, that's interesting. That's not how I read the situation at all, but I like it. I like that better than my read. Yeah. But I find like there's something I asked you about it because for me, there's something really uncomfortable about that scene. Yes. That I can't, I still can't quite put my finger on even after teasing out all of, you know, what I imagine to be Joe's motivation. You know, that he wants to he wants to be the millionaire in glasses who is sweet and gentle and tender and not, you know, objectifying her. But there's something there's something icky about it. I don't know. Well, okay, so now I'm I'm thinking this through and and with your read on it, I actually I feel better about the scene now because thinking about it. He didn't start doing that until after he told her that they were alone on the boat. And she kind of has that moment of, oh, I've never been alone with a man before. In the and middle of after the night. That, that in the middle starts, of the ocean. Right. In the middle of the <laughs> night. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's after that moment when she she has that slight moment of apprehension that he starts going down that road. And so part of me is now wondering, was that a conscious choice to put her at ease? Like you were kind of saying, like he's trying to show that it's not just about the sex, that he's not this man who's going to take advantage of her, even though by definition, with all of the deception, he is taking advantage of her. But I think I think the uncomfortableness comes just from the idea of of the deception in itself. You know, the situation that he's put them in, Mm -hmm. they're alone and he's obviously trying to seduce her, but he's seducing her almost by gaslighting her, by making her think it's her idea. Yeah. Yeah. And I think from right now, given, you know, we're in the middle of the Me Too movement and all of that stuff, it just, it feels very icky. And I know that's not what they were going for at all. But looking at it now, I think uncomfortable is just the word because you know logically that's not what they're trying to do. They are trying to give us a love story that we can root for. Mm-hmm. I mean, because this is the happily ever after that we get at the end right. is these two. But it's tough to watch sometimes. I, I, I think it's, a, again, for me, it's an evidence of, of the time it was written. They've already set up that I think she has been with men before. They they talk about her in these other bands with the other men and the type that she mm-hmm. goes after. He pretends to be this millionaire, this you know Shell Junior. Yeah. Um, and it's 
it, you know, what, what's the end result of that? That's not a long-term deception that you can play off for, for much, if at all, past that conversation. Right. You know, it's only luck that he's got the, the free boat from Osgood, effectively. So he's doing this because he wants to sleep with her. Right. Right. Like that, that, that is the, the absolute end goal of this. And he just turns it into a negging, playing hard to get type thing. You know, I see I've kissed you so passionately and nothing. And, you know, and, and she then feels like, well, I've got to keep trying. I've got to turn this man on because, right. you know, that is, that is my value, my worth as has always been proven. And, and I'm not so bright and yeah. I am not pure. So it's okay for him to do this. I think is, is probably what they're telling the audience. Like, it's okay. Mm. She's been with people before. So it's not like, you know, this is her first time. So it's yeah. going to be anything important. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and that's part of, that is part of Marilyn Monroe's whole sex symbol mm. thing is, you know, she is available for sex, but not in a way that is dangerous. I mean, she's not the femme fatale who's going to sleep with you and then kill you. She's, you know, she's, I love the way she says, I've never been completely alone with a man before in the middle of the night, in the middle of the ocean. Like she has mm-hmm. to qualify, she has to qualify mm-hmm. that statement. Um, so there is that little bit of like, nervousness and naivete and this is my first time but really it's only her first time in this situation yeah so Mm -hmm. she's she can be which which enables her to be both innocent and sweet and also there to fulfill a man's sexual desires Mm. so really marilyn monroe is a fascinating character and I think that there's, I mean, there's a good reason there's like a million biographies of her. Mm-hmm. But again, I mean, I think that brings us back to that, that self-awareness. And you mentioned it, Matthew, that she understands her worth as a sex object, that being, being here, being sexy for this man, turning him on, that is why she's here. Yeah, and if she can't do that, she might as well not be anywhere. That's all she can do. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's that's part of the the whole thing with her, you know, the reputation for throwing tantrums and you know many many takes for recording things. Part of that is because she felt she didn't have the value as an actress. She wasn't taken seriously and when she got to do it, she had bundles of nerves and would burst into tears because she was so afraid of messing up and not performing. And then going to chemical substances to uh, to support her through that and deal with her nerves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is why that that moment when she's depressed after mm-hmm. after Joe has broken it off over the phone and she comes just staggering into Daphne and Josephine's room and gets the gets the cocktail shaker, the hot water bottle, and she's abject and she says, "I'll bring this back when it's empty." And then she goes back to her room is so heartbreaking because there's a little bit of autobiography in that about, you know, turning to, to drinking to cope with the heartbreak of the situation that you're in, which, you know, is a real thing. But there's something, you know, when it's when you know about 
Marilyn and her history, that that moment always feels extra painful for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is a great film. It works on a lot of levels. It does. It does. And we got, I mean, we got sort of dark and serious, but I mean, it is absolutely one of the funniest films I think I've ever seen just in terms of how quickly the the jokes flow from one to the next mm. that you just it's just a constant stream but it's clever it's not punchline 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 it's a lot of wordplay um it's a lot of really smart writing and i think that's part that is also part of the reason why it holds up is it's really really well written yeah so so let's let's lighten it a bit then let's talk about some of your favorites in it presumably having seen it so often you you know um most of it back to front i know a lot <laughs> of it i know a lot of it and i have a lot of favorite lines you know i mentioned the wordplay i absolutely love the mixed metaphors um and the and hmm. just the the wordplay especially between um joe and jerry you know, Jerry says, she called me honey. And then um, Joe takes the the ladder down from the bunk and says, making sure honey stays in the hive. And of course, we already we already mentioned pulling your reel, Mr. Fielding, you're barking up the wrong fish. It's just fantastic. <laughs> um, and at the end, when the the, you know, the mobsters are in the hotel, Jerry says, uh, the omelet's about to hit the fan. Joe has said, you know, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. And Jerry looks behind them and there's, you know, there's spats in his guys. He says, the omelet's about to hit the fan. And that, it just delights me to no end. I love it. We haven't actually talked much about spats. Um, mm. I think it's interesting that in a, in a story where clothing is such an important element, our villain is also identified by something he wears, you know, his spats. But George Raft plays spats. And there's a wonderful moment toward the end where he confronts the guy who's flipping a coin in, in you know, full on gangster fashion. And he says, mm -hmm. where'd you pick up that cheap trick? Well, Raft's big break was Howard Hawks' 1932 Scarface. And part of what was notable about that performance was his character is frequently seen flipping a nickel during scenes, and which became an iconic trope in gangster films. So audiences at the time would have recognized George Raft saying to this other actor, where'd you pick up that cheap trick? So a little, a lovely little meta reference mm. for contemporary audiences who would have recognized him as this, you know, he's credited with creating this, this trope for gangster films. Lots of people have okay. tried to claim that that was their idea, but I just, I, I love little moments like that, that would have been more visible to audiences at the time. It's the sort of yeah. thing Wilder did all through Sunset Boulevard and some of his other stuff. It's it's just lovely seeing people sort of doing callbacks and, you know, bringing roles from other films over. It's lovely. Yeah. I mean, he did the same thing and with other characters in this movie, too. So he pulled some um, a lot of the gangster extras. You know, I think they were credited as like Spats henchmen or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, they had been in other gangster films. So that was just his 
thing, I guess, is pulling similar characters in to do some of the smaller roles. So what about you, Mandy? What about favorite moments? Um, oh, there's so much. It's so good. Oh, we already talked about the last line. It tickled me so much. Um, I really, really like how committed Tony Curtis and, and um, Jack Lemmon were to this film. Um, I was reading about how in the costume process, when they were kind of designing what the characters were going to look like, they refused to have just regular off-the-rack dresses for their characters because Marilyn Monroe got to have designer dresses. And if they were really going to pull this off, their characters needed to have designer dresses as well. And um, demanded that the same guy, Ori Carey, who designed all of her dresses, had to do their costumes too. That's hilarious. Which apparently paid off because that's how they ended up winning the Oscar. Oh, but that's hilarious. I love it. I think it is... Absolutely hilarious. But I think it's brilliant. It worked. Could some of the lines, uh, you were talking about a little bit of the meta-ness with spats. Um, but Jerry, after Jerry had caught Joe being junior, you know, when they get back to the hotel room, he says, What are you trying to do to that poor girl putting on a millionaire act? And where did you get that phony accent? Nobody talks like that. And it's hilarious, and I didn't pick up on this, but I think audiences at the time would. Tony Curtis was doing an impersonation of Cary Grant yes. yeah. for Junior. And so later on, uh, somebody asked Cary Grant how he thought the impression was, and Cary Grant's response was that he doesn't talk like that. And I thought, like, it was just hilarious down the line, like, just kind of how it kept going. Little things like that are funny and it's sad that for, in 2019, you kind of have to read the anecdotes to get how funny it was at the time. Yeah. But audiences in 1959 would have absolutely recognized what he was doing. Yeah. He's clearly Cary Grant, and it's fantastic. Yeah. And we haven't actually talked about Jack Lemmon's performance a lot. I know you've touched on it, and um, he's... Just he's my favorite. He's so good in this. Mm-hmm. Um, oddly enough, I I feel like he looks, or I guess Richard Kind kind of looks like Jack Lemon. I don't know if they're related or not, but I kept getting watching um, him in the various stages of this movie. The way that he would say something, or the way that his like face would just look. Uh-huh. I kept thinking, oh, that's Richard Kind, but obviously it's not because way long time ago. Um, but his performance was just, he was all in. Both the actor was all in and then the character himself, like Jerry was all in as Daphne and just watching that play out was so good. Hi! I'm the bass fiddle, just call me Daphne. Hi! My name is Josephine. Sad. Welcome to know me, oh, Take off your corsets and spread out. Oh, well, I don't wear one myself. Don't you bulge? Huh? Bulge me? I have the most defined seamstress. Comes in just once a month. Well, my dear, she is so inexpensive. Come on, and she Daphne. Told, oh, all right. It is easily my favorite thing about this movie is all of Jack Lemmon. His entire performance yeah. in this movie is just mm. delightful. I root so hard for Jerry. I'm with Jerry when when he says, you know, you can you want me to be alone on that boat with that dirty old man. You know, he's just he's just 
scandalized that Joe is trying to make him, you know, do all of these, these wild things. But then when, when Joe says, no, I'm going to be on the boat with sugar, you know, keep him, you know, keep him on the shore, tell him you get seasick, whatever. Then Jerry just goes for it. It's so funny. And, and Jerry is so into, I mean, we talked about it a little bit already, but as soon as they get on the train and all the girls are there, Daphne is fully Daphne. And it is delightful. I love seeing Jerry kind of grab this role and run with it. It's so, so much fun. I, I think yeah, it, it absolutely is. Yeah, it's easily my favorite thing as well. Uh, Marilyn Monroe is, is really good. She has a lot of actually very funny moments and she looks fantastic. But yeah. Jack Lemmon is just wonderful at everything he does because, because he doesn't seem to want to do it because he's complaining and complaining. And then he gets there and he's just into it. Well, fine. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it to a hundred. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's terrific. And it's, it's charming as well because he drops the sort of malice element to it or the, the, you know, macho thing that he would start out with. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. He starts out with this kind of like, you know, sort of lecherous, like, ooh, there's all these, mm. all these, you know, girls in 90s and we're on this train and, you know, it's like, and I think he even says something about, you know, like being a kid in a candy shop. And mm-hmm. he, that, that disappears so quickly. It's just, you know, shortly after that. He's just like in it for the connection with other people, I guess. And I like, I kind of like what that says about changing your identity as an opportunity to kind of explore yourself and your friendships and your connections with other people. That identity, you know, maybe, maybe a new name or a new outfit or a new way of moving through the world can be the thing that really helps you get in touch with who you are and what you want. I mean, Jerry is truly stoked on being engaged to Osgood. And it's not just that Osgood is a millionaire and they're going to, you know, get a quick annulment and there's going to be the settlement and lots of money. It's he obviously had a great time dancing until, you know, the wee hours of the morning. Mm. There's something kind of magical about what changing your identity or or just putting on a costume, I think, can enable a person to do or feel or explore. That that line when he says, I'm engaged, who's the lucky girl? I am. Yes. He's so into it. It's, it's, it, and, and it's matched by his delight at getting to put on a swimming costume. Yes. You know, when he says, Oh, we could get some at the shop. We could get some at the shop. Yep. <laughs> yes. Yep. <laughs> so great. He- Terrific. Sorry, I did have one other line that I didn't actually write down because I forgot about it until something you said, Noel, reminded me of it. Um, when we see the first performance of the band and, uh, sweet Sue starts talking to the audience and she says something like, you know, you guys should all know that all of my girls are virtuosos. 
Yes. And I expect them to stay that way. I intend to keep it that way. (laughs) Yes. And then she winks. It's so great use of the wink. Yeah. Yeah. That was a great line. It also cracked me up. Matthew, what else did you like about this one? No, that that I I think we have covered it in in you know we've dug into this quite a lot. There, there is mm-hmm. just so much to enjoy, and and I think on different levels. You know, we've enjoyed the wordplay, the performances, the way they're dressed, and I could see people liking this. Going, oh, it's a really funny caper. Yeah, yeah, that bit where they're running away from the guys with the guns. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> there is the, there's just so many different levels to the to the humor in this. It's great. Mm-hmm. All right, then. Well, is there anything else that we need to discuss about Some Like It Hot? So we've talked a lot about Marilyn here. Are you interested in watching other Marilyn Monroe films? You know, I actually am after seeing this one. I, after doing, you know, Sunset Boulevard and doing this one and absolutely loving both of them, you know, I am completely over my black and white Mm -hmm. aversion. So other black and white movies are great. I'm sure I know she did a lot of color movies because it was in her contract that her movies had to be in color. Yes. Um, so doing older movies in general, I think, is definitely something I need to get caught up on. <laughs> and, um, you know, like I said earlier, finding out that she really is genuinely very talented. Yeah. Yeah. You know, makes me want to see more of what she did. Yeah. Well, for color... I would definitely suggest Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. That was 1953, directed by Howard Hawks. And it is absolutely delightful. It does a lot of similar um, plays on the kind of, you know, we're, we're, we're sneaking around and deceiving people because we want to marry a rich man. But more than that, there's, um, uh, Jane, Jane Russell co-stars with Marilyn Monroe and gentlemen prefer blondes really turns into this kind of girl, girl friendship love story in the way that I think some like it hot is in many ways a guy, guy friendship love story mm. and gentlemen prefer blondes is absolutely gorgeous to look at. Um, and it's it's what gives us uh, Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, which you've certainly seen referenced. I mean, Madonna's Material Girl video is um, a, a sort of take on the the uh, Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend number from Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. There's a, a cover of it in, I think, the first or second season of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which is just delightful. Both, both the, the music video they do for it, but the song itself as well. My experience of the song is from Moulin Rouge. Okay. That's another yeah. good one. Not, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not Madonna, but Moulin Rouge. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Noelle, is there anything you would recommend either as a chaser um, to this film or other films that are your favorites that we should go and check out? Well, I mentioned uh, Double Indemnity, which is mm. also Billy Wilder is noir. Um, it's it was made in 1944 so quite a bit before some like it hot and i mean it's really i mean it is the film noir like if you're if you're going to watch one i know you did sunset boulevard and that's a good one too um but i absolutely love that but of course that's you know that's really dark and not so much 
fun and lighthearted. Um, I kept thinking that the movie Ball of Fire, which was made in 1941, was a Billy Wilder film. Uh, it was actually directed by Howard Hawks. I looked this up and, uh, Wilder, but Wilder wrote the story and Ball of Fire is not super well known. It's a screwball comedy. It's, hmm. uh, uh, Gary Cooper and Barbara Stanwyck and he plays an English professor and she plays a showgirl. And it's very much the fish out of water kind of story. No one, no one adopts any disguises, but she does hide out with him for a while. And his, I want to say six other academics who are working on an encyclopedia. And he, um, he learns slang from her and it is absolutely delightful. It is so charming. Um, and if you like the sort of, people cleverly deceiving each other into a love story kind of love mm -hmm. story uh preston sturge's the lady eve is another screwball comedy also from 1941 um also starring barbara stanwyck i have a little bit of a thing for barbara stanwyck mm -hmm. and uh she is the the con artist in that one and so funny i mean she does a kind of a the the sort of female version i guess of um Joe's, you know, Shell Oil Jr. millionaire, she plays this upper class lady to seduce this young, naive um, okay. Henry Fonda. So it's the Lady Eve is, is uh, really, really clever and delightful. If And all of those, all of those are black and white. So if you feel like dipping in, <laughs> dipping your toe right. into the black and white waters, <laughs> but I get it. I mean, watching, watching things in black and white, I think is a different, um, it uses a different part of your, your um, viewing, you know, your, your, uh, what am I trying to say? You like film literacy. It's almost like you have to <laughs> mm -hmm. tune into a, a different um, aesthetic to really get there sometimes. So yeah, no, no shame in shying away from black and white movies. <laughs> Although there's some good ones. No, I'm, yeah, I'm really excited now about expanding our list to include some of these movies from the 40s and 50s. Yeah, the, um, the we've shied away from it because I wasn't ready. But I think, I think I am now and I'm looking forward to it. That's awesome. Good times. Is, is this your era, your sort of go to? The kind of classic golden era of cinema. Mine? I love, mm. I love, um, especially the screwball comedies from the 30s right. and 40s. Um, right. Yeah, that is my favorite. The screwball comedy is my favorite uh, permutation of the romantic comedy. Nice. Oh, and there are a lot of them. <laughs> All right. Well, if you would like to join the conversation and tell us about your favorite movies from the 40s and 50s, you can use the hashtag PC Deprived on Twitter. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Eloquent Gushing, or you can send an email to podcast at eloquentgushing.com. You can find us all on Twitter. I'm at Mandy Kay. And I'm at Matthew Vose. Noelle, thank you so much for joining us. This was a huge amount of fun. Uh, where are people able to find you? Thank you. I had a blast. Uh, people can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Noelle Aloud. And you can read my thoughts on recovery, self-discovery, and love, if that's your thing, at joycurious.com.
And you can also find Noelle's podcast at chipperish.com. Yeah, I probably, I probably like should plug the podcast. Yeah, Mandy (laughs) mentioned it at the top of the show, but I do um, Still Pretty, which is a Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast with Lonnie Diane Rich. We are spoiler full. So if you are super familiar with Buffy and want to take that deep dive with us, we're having a really good time. I bring my uh, feminist film theory and kind of a directorial eye <laughs> to Buffy, and we've had some really, really great discussions. And then I also do Orgasm with Dr. Kelly Jones about explosive inspiration. Yeah, both All definitely worth checking out. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Pop Culture Deprived is completely funded by listeners like you through Patreon. Anything you can give, even $1 a month, it gives you access to exclusive content and helps to support the network and develop new shows. To find out more, go to patreon.com slash eloquentgushing. And don't forget to check out all our other shows on our homepage, eloquentgushing.com. And we'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Pop Culturally Deprived, where we'll talk about The Fugitive. Until next time, I'm Mandy Kay. And I used to sell kisses for the Milk Fund. <laughs>